The Christian Ethic of Work, coming up next on Growing Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand, singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said let this world know me by your love. Highlighting the benefit of hard work, someone said, if you'll chop your own wood, it'll warm you twice. And yet, if we're honest, we'd rather have someone else chop it for us. And then we'd have someone else pay for it. But does that really work? Don't we lose something in the process? We'll find out today on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're given clear instruction on the ethic of work. We begin with what could be called some words for the weary in work. Picking things up in chapter 3 and verse 5, here's Pastor Ed. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition or teachings which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we command you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We need it in our lives. We pray that you would teach us now, all of us, that we might grow in you. Apply this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Words for the weary. Aesop's fables were probably favorite of kids all over the world, stories written by this man who we really don't know very much about, particularly his early life. He was born in about 620 B.C., and he was a slave. And as he became more and more recognized, he went from being a slave in the Greek Roman Empire to becoming a counselor and an advisor to kings. And he wrote a lot of them. Probably the best known is uh, the one I want to just mention because it touches on what we're studying this morning, the turtle and the hare, the rabbit and the tortoise, and a whole bunch of other ways to say it. Stories about this rabbit, you'll remember, who was in a race with a turtle. And of course, anyone would say, well, that's no match. The uh, 
turtle's going to get his clock cleaned, and the rabbit's going to run away with the whole thing. That's what the rabbit thought, and that turned out to be his downfall. And he took off in a cloud of dust and leaving the turtle behind. He got so far ahead that he said, you know, I can take a nap. So confident, and he went to sleep under a tree while the turtle is just steadfast, moving along, consistent, keeping up his perseverance. Well, he gets all the way up almost to the finish line, you'll remember, and the rabbit wakes up and looks and sees he's in trouble, puts on the best burst of speed he could pull off, but the turtle crossed the finish line before him. So the moral of the story is you should ride on a turtle, I guess. <laughs> no, no, the race is not won by the fastest runner or the one who gets out in front with the biggest lead at first. It goes to the steadfast, consistent, regular-paced person. Well, that's basically what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this section of Scripture. You'll remember if you're just joining us, we've been going through First and Second Thessalonians written to a church up in this northern part of Greece. Now, it was a very important city in the Greco-Roman Empire, second or third largest city in Greece. It was famous because it had a very famous road go through it, the Via Natia, and it sat on the coast looking up at Mount Olympus, the mountain, of course, where the Olympic Games come from and all the supporters of Greek gods, the Ignatia. And it was the road that went from Rome up through Thessalonia all the way over to what's Istanbul today, then Constantinople. So this famous Roman road brought a lot of trade through there. It was also a port that was very busy, and it was to the city that Paul came in about uh, 50 or 51, and he preached the gospel in a synagogue for three weeks, and people responded. Many got saved. He actually had to get out of town rather quickly because some Jews from Philippi came down. You can read the story in Acts 16 and 17. He went down to Athens, south, and then all the way over to Corinth. He wrote a letter, and the first one was taken by Timothy. We have a, a letter, two letters written to him, back up to Thessalonia. He's encouraging them. And Timothy leaves, and he doesn't get back very long until he hears there's problems again. Someone had come with a forged letter with Paul's name on it that wasn't from Paul. And it said that Jesus had come, they'd missed it. <laughs> and so that created all kinds of problems in the church. And to the point that some people just quit working and said, oh, you know, what's the use? There's nothing to be gained here in life. So Paul writes this second letter to encourage them about what we often call the Protestant work ethic. It is not Protestant. It is a biblical work ethic, and it's very deeply embedded in here in this concept of working and of not growing weary as you do work. So it's meant to be an encouragement President Calvin Coolidge said years ago, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not take its place. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with great talent. Genius will not take the place of persistence. Unrewarded genius is everywhere, almost a proverb. Education will not take the place of persistence. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence stands alone, consistent and steady. And that's what Paul is saying here. Do not grow weary in doing good. Now, 
this section, the close of the letter, breaks up into three parts. Follow me, five through nine. Imitate Paul. And then 10 through 15, don't grow weary. And then the last section, grace and peace, in the closing, 16 through 18. It's a very interesting piece of Scripture that in an area we don't normally talk about, this concept of work. So let's uh, look at it and see what God might say to all of us. Verse 5, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. We looked at this just a little bit last time. This is not your love for God. This is God's love for you. His love for you drove him to put his son here on earth to die on a cross so that God the Son could take your sins, my sins, on himself. And we know the good news, the gospel, based upon God so loved the world that he sent his son. So that love invades our hearts, and it is something that we don't deserve. And that's what Paul is pointing to, the love of God into the patience of Christ. We believers with humility should recognize this concept of God's love came to us when we didn't deserve it, when we don't deserve it. We are saved. It is by grace. It is a gift. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, because God has done that for us, then we have this great privilege of working in his kingdom. And he strengthens us and encourages us through his love. He meets us in that love. He wants us to be confident about his love towards us. He actually wants us to be bold about it. Now, I grew up in a church that was very tentative about the idea of someone being saved, and they said it would be arrogant to say that you know that you're saved. Well, that's not what Scripture said. In fact, Scripture says very clearly that if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. It's done. It is by grace you have been saved, past tense, through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So that confidence should work out in our lives so that we do things, we try things, we step out in faith, we dance on the edge for God. That's what he said in the writer of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let us boldly, another translation says, come into the throne room of grace. Come confidently. God wants you to be confident about your relationship with him lasting for eternity. It's based upon God's love. Paul then develops it in verse 6, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and he gets serious here, that you withdraw from every brother, Christians, who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions, not a good translation, the truths or the teachings which he has received from us. So these instructions are specifically how to deal with people who refuse to work. It's going to be very clear as we work our way through these, these next few verses. Disorderly because they refuse to submit to what God wants them to do. The word traditions is not a good word because it has this concept of traditions of men. Jesus spoke a lot about it. Back in Mark 7, 8, he was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, for laying aside the commandments, the teachings of God, you hold the traditions, the teachings of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things, these dietary things, 
He said to them, all too well you reject the command of God that you may keep your traditions. So following the traditions of men is always a battle with people in the church. They say, well, that's our tradition. We've always done it that way. I have a little sign up in the office and it says, the seven last words of a dying church. We've never done it this way before. But there are traditions, teachings of Jesus that are locked in. And that's what Paul is talking about. You love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all of this is growing out of that second commandment. Loving your neighbor as yourself means you'll live your life a certain way. Important distinction Pastor Ed has highlighted between the traditions of men and God's commands. We continue now on Growing Grace in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 7 with more clarity on what or who we're to be following. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly, out of line, in front of you. We were unruly, another translation said. Paul says, my life is an example for you to follow. He wasn't being arrogant. He was saying, this is a pattern that I lived out in front of you so you could see and you could follow what I'm doing. Follow me as I follow Christ. He said it over and over again, 1 Corinthians 4, 16, imitate me. Uh, Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ himself. The things I do, I do in his power. Now, Paul is the leader. By definition, a leader is someone who knows where he's going, and he is able to take others with him to a good place. Bad leadership will take you someplace, but not good. Matthew 15, 14, Jesus speaking. Let them alone, talking about these men who are into the traditions of men. Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So Paul is following Jesus Christ, and Paul is imitating Christ, so he wants us to follow him to a good place. It's called heaven, and it's for eternity. For you were not, we were not, excuse me, disorderly among you. Disorderly means out of ranks. It's a military term, actually. Priorities out of order. Paul says, I didn't have my priorities out of order. I understood what was important. Those who were in Thessalonica were becoming disorderly, unruly. They were refusing to contribute, not only just idleness, but we'll see in verse 11, they're into gossip, talking about other people. Yeah, idleness. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil day and night that we might not be a burden on any of you. We didn't ask for handouts. Paul says, if we took bread, we paid for it. Now, once again, he's telling us about something that is an attribute, a characteristic of God himself, work. I don't think we normally think that way, even though we'll say, well, it's a work of God. Well, God does work. Scripture is filled with it. The work of God in creating the cosmos and another work of sustaining his creation, work of God in redemption in salvation in your life and mine. 
God works in sanctification in your life and mine. And when we come to him and we walk along with him, then the rest of our life is this process that God is taking us through. It's a work of God, we say, and that's correct. It is. There's a work of God in the Son, Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus speaking, John 8, 4, I must do the work of my Father. Now, I realize I have an uphill battle here. I'm trying to tell you how good work is. But it is, in fact, an attribute of God, an attribute of the Son, attribute of God, the Holy Spirit. The gifting and the moving of the Spirit is a work of God, we say, and that's accurate. Scripture says it over and over again. Paul says, and we're going to develop this, Paul develops it as he goes along. We didn't do any freeloading. We were careful not to burden anyone's family. Verse 9, not because... We don't have the authority, we're apostles, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Again, Paul is in the process of surrendering his rights. He said, we have a right that the workman is worthy of his hire, he'll write. That in fact, he could have said, well, you should feed us because we're teaching you and professors. In that day, it was common for family to take a professor in and have them teach their children and feed them and give them a place to stay. Paul said, I did not demand my rights. Now, that sounds a little strange even to our American ears because we're always talking about our rights. We got a bill of rights, right? And people demand. I demand my rights. Paul says, I lay down my rights. Jesus laid down his rights as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's our model, surrendering rights. Taps was just singing about surrendering. That's what he was talking about, surrendering our rights. So, a second time he says, follow me. So that's the first section. Now, don't grow weary. Here, this is meant to be an encouragement, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. Now, these are fighting words in a lot of groups. Okay, now, person, first, listen, Paul is simply saying that a person who is able to work ought to work. Obviously, he's not talking about someone who's been injured, who's recovering, who's handicapped. This is talking about someone who is fully physically able to work. We have a guy in our church who is a hardworking guy, a carpenter, and he told me he stopped by one of these guys that had a sign, will work for food. He said, jump in the truck. I got plenty of work and plenty of food. And the guy said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, you're just going to be a laborer. Oh, no, no, I can't do that. No, I make too much money here. Okay. <laughs> can't afford it. Comic strip, two guys I saw this week by a store with a sign in the window that said, no help wanted. One of the men turned to the other and said, you ought to apply for that. You're great at that. You're no help anyway. <laughs> So, our society has some really strange thoughts, confusion, I guess you'd say, uh, about this concept of work. That we, on one hand, we have workaholics who just pour themselves into their life. It's their whole reason for life, and that's the only thing they can think about. On the other hand, we have work abhorics. They abhor work, and they don't want anything to do with it. And then in between, you know, most people work because of that little bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work, I go. But the Greeks of Paul's day believed that any physical labor was demeaning. That was for slaves only. You wouldn't do anything that would cause you to break out into a sweat. They said that the gods hated them. Homer wrote, the gods hate men. And the way they demonstrate their hatred is to invent work and punish men and make them work. 
Now, I've heard scripture say that. I sat and listened to pastors teach that, you know, that work is the result of the curse. No, 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 no. Go back and look at Genesis chapter 2. How about verse 15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So a long time before the curse, man was designed, in fact, to work in the garden. Now, someone said, yeah, but after the curse, he went from being a flower arranger to a dirt digger, you know, some really serious labor. And uh, there is some of that. There is uh, worth in work, though. That's what Paul is saying. Again, because it is an attribute of God, and God has dignified us by giving us the chance to labor with him, co-labor with him in his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let me just say something that will probably cause some people to struggle, but I want to be clear about socialism. I've lived long enough to understand that socialism versus democracy is hands down no contest. Now, I went to university in the 70s and then in the 80s and taught, and I heard Marxist professors. I listened to how socialism was going to solve all the world's problems. Let me give you the benefit of the culture shock I had when my wife and I went into Eastern Europe before the wall came down in Berlin. Now, we have worked in the Soviet Union, in Hungary, in East Germany, in Albania, in Romania, old Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, Slovak today. Virtually every communist country, socialist country, they would say. And the first great exposure to me that completely shocked me was that they all had walls, they all had chain link fence, they all had plowed ground, they all had gun towers, guard towers every 500 feet or so. But what was unique about them was all of those fences were not to keep people out. Hello? All their citizens were trying to leave. If it's so good, if socialism is so good, why are people still trying to leave Cuba? Because they had a radical dictator there who tortured and murdered people, keep those cards and letters coming, who tortured and murdered people and completely suppressed the free press. So, Castro said some astoundingly stupid things. Let me tell you how I really feel. He said, well, you talk about the failure of socialism, the grand failure of socialism. How are those Greeks doing? The grand failure of socialism. Hungary is still trying to recover from 70 years of socialism. Why? Because you got generations of people that said, well, it's not good to work. <laughs> the, the state will take care of you. So he says, well, you talk about the failure of socialism. Show me one good capitalistic country in Africa. How about South Africa? How about Asia, he said. In Africa, in Asia, in South America. How about Brazil? How about Argentina? How about Japan, third largest economy in the world? How about China, second largest? Now why? Because they're becoming capitalists. Thailand? How long do you want the list? Socialism is the wrong direction, and Paul is teaching directly against it here. Important and timely instruction Pastor Ed Ray has given us on the virtue of work and the vice of idleness. God is working, and for us to be working is to be like God. This is Grow in Grace. 
Thanks for listening. We're nearing the end of our study in 2 Thessalonians. For a CD copy of today's message, give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Or you can listen online at thepackinghouse.org. And look for us on iTunes now as well. We can hook you up with many more resources to help you grow in grace when you visit thepackinghouse.org like Pastor Ed's devotional. And speaking of resources, today we'd like to make special mention of Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, authored by renowned surgeon Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. Together, they explore the human body and uncover statements that God has made about our bodies. They point out that the human body is like a window into the very structure of God's creation and a testament to God's glory. This month, we'll send this to those of you who support Grow in Grace with a donation of any amount. You might think of it as our way of saying thanks for your year-end gift. Please remember that your support helps us bring Pastor Ed's teachings to the radio every day. To make a year-end contribution, go online at thepackinghouse.org. Or again, give us a call, 844 844- Seven seven grace. We'll take a brief break from Second Thessalonians to bring you Christmas time encouragement from Luke next weekend on Growing Grace. This program is brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands. Selfless sacrifice for everyone Faith, hope, love and harmony I said let this world know me by your